the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, we look at the climate summit due to start in Dubai in a few hours and the wish list that's uh, there for Australian farmers and farmers in the Beaker Valley. Well, they've woken up to water views this morning with widespread falls of more than 200 millimetres causing minor flooding across the Shire and a bit of damage. Yeah, we uh, spent most of yesterday getting the infrastructure out of the out of the flood zone, so um, yeah, all our pumps and irrigators are safe. Um, I think most people managed to get their pumps out, but uh, yeah, it's, it's looking like um, oh, about 10% of our maize crop is, is currently underwater. We'll hear more about that story shortly, and uh, we're going to cross to our reporters uh, on the scene in Denny as well. A lot of quite a lot of rain in Denilquin, and a bit of damage there. So we'll be crossing to them at about a quarter to one on the Country Hour. That's uh, that's all coming up. But first up today, this year's United Nations Climate Summit COP28 will officially launch in Dubai in just a few hours' time, and agriculture will take centre stage because this year a day dedicated to agriculture, food and water, is on the host country's agenda. Fiona Broom has the details. Just eight years ago, world leaders at the UN Climate Summit in Paris committed to hold global temperatures to between 1.5 and 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Global temperatures are already nudging this limit, and that's having a huge impact on food production. Australia exports about 70% of the food and fibre it produces, so climate change threatens not only agribusinesses in Australia, but global food security as well. The host country for this year's climate conference, the UAE, is drumming up support for a leader's declaration on resilient and sustainable food systems and climate action. It's absolutely the first time that agriculture and water have been on the president's agenda at any UN climate meeting. We think missing the story of agriculture and water in climate um, has been too big a miss for too long and we want to get it right moving forward. Natalie Collard from Farmers for Climate Action will travel to Dubai as part of a delegation of Australian producers. So now that agriculture is squarely on the agenda for the first time in 30 years, what policy outcomes does the sector want to see? Taking responsibility for our role in reducing emissions as a sector, but also taking responsibility for the solutions that we provide while producing food and being recognised for the role that we play. Um, We're really proud to represent a responsible industry that hasn't needed a stick so far. In terms of the concrete actions, we're realistic. We understand that actually the onus is on us and every other attendee to really drive those negotiations and encourage our government to stick to those Paris Agreement targets. We do not want any backsliding on that. David Johinke, president of the NFF, will also be at the summit. He says he wants to see Australian agricultural practices recognised on the world stage. We're now having agriculture at the table, agriculture being part of that discussion because we get talked about a lot, we get told what to do, but we haven't been as forthright and as um, loud and proud about the good work that we've done. So for us, we are seeing a lot of trade barriers being put into place around the discussion of sustainability, around the discussion of deforestation. What we want to do is put that Australian lens on the table. What we're trying to do is make sure that we're saying that we are different, 
we do a great job in, in Australia and we have got a sustainability framework that we're working towards. So when we have those farmers who are saying, we don't believe in climate change, but we've got great biodiversity, we can say, well, actually, you're already contributing. You're actually doing a part that we're asking you for. And we're just trying to get that internationally recognised. For Jared Greenville, the head of Australia's federal agriculture research body, ABES, agricultural subsidies need scrutiny. We, we already know that you know, reducing emissions is a global problem, but when we think about food being produced, we kind of want to make sure that it's produced in the place where it's least emissions intensive and, and most efficient to do so. And when we look across the government policies that exist across the world as they relate to agriculture, we see quite a significant amount of subsidies, trade distortions and the like, and these all have some very negative environmental impacts. There's real scope for countries to come together and to start to tackle that issue in line with trying to achieve some of the emissions reduction targets, and so I think that's a critical issue which we could make tangible progress on. That's Jared Greenville from ABARES talking about the United Nations Climate Summit COP28, which is due to launch in a few hours' time. Fiona Broom with that story. It's 10 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. To the rainfall now and farmers in the Beega Valley have woken up to water views this morning. Widespread falls of more than 200 millimetres causing minor flooding across the Shire. Some crop damage as well. The SES received more than a thousand calls for help across the southern region. One farmer at Candelo reported 320 millimetres in the past 24 hours and 370 for the week. Will Russell's a dairy farmer at uh, Gilla Flats just outside of Bega and he says parts of his maize crop, well, parts, parts of it are underwater. We've clocked up uh, 200 mil in the last 24 hours um, and before that we, we had about 50 mil in the five days preceding that. So, yeah, 250 mil in this sort of long rain event. And you farm partly on the river flats there. What sort of impact has it had so far? Yeah, so we, we were hoping we were going to get away without a, without a flood over Jilla, but we woke up this morning to the road closed and, and water over most of the, the bitumen on Tartar Road there at Jilla. I'd say it's a minor flood, uh, yeah, it's only about half a metre over the road and hopefully on its way down, um, the rain has eased off a bit where we are. Hopefully it's eased off up in the catchment as well. So, yeah, we're hoping yeah, if it stays away in the next 24 hours, the water will be starting to drain away and off the road again. Has it had any damage yet to infrastructure, either to your pumps or any to the or any of the, the crops that you've got, maize crops along the river flats there? Yeah, we uh, spent most of yesterday getting the infrastructure out of the out of the flood zone. So um, yeah, all our pumps and irrigators are safe. Um, I think most people managed to get their pumps out, but uh, yeah, it's looking like um, oh, about ten percent of our maize crop is, is currently underwater, and uh, the the Jilla sweet corn crop is is faring a little bit better. It's only probably yeah five five percent underwater, so just a little bit of a loss. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't get any worse and if it trains away quickly, the crop can still survive and grow on and, and produce a good yield. 
Uh, the forecast for today is for an additional 50 to 140 millimetres for Bega. What do you think that could mean for the outlook for the rest of today and the coming days? Uh, well, if we get that, then we're really in trouble. But <laughs> yeah, no rain at the moment, and I hope it, hope it stays that way. But if we get another 100 mil, that would uh, really send our mags up underwater, and yeah, it'd be, it'd be a lot of damage, I would think. Will Russell's a dairy farmer from the Bega Valley. He was speaking there to Josh Becker. Now, a farmer between Parks and Forbes in the Central West says the recent rainfall is setting the region up perfectly for sowing next year. Bruce Watson grows crop at his uh, property at Tickbourne, which has received more than 90 millimetres since Tuesday. He says after this year's dry conditions, the rain has been critical to prepare the ground for next season's crop. For us, we've still got a little bit of winter crop to harvest. We've still got uh, some chickpeas and some albus lupins. Uh, so, look, from a tiling point of view, it's probably not ideal, but we've got all the our, our rest of our winter crops all off, and but probably the most encouraging thing is it starts to build a profile for next year. Yeah, so what does this mean for, for setting you guys up for, for next year? How important is this rain for, for next year getting ready? Oh, look, probably the one thing that a lot of growers have realised coming out of the 2023 year is that anyone who managed to protect that profile from the flooding we had in November of of uh, 2022, like we had those devastating floods, it just enabled us to grow grain on this year when we haven't had a lot of in-crop rainfall. We only had 120 millimetres of rain in-crop uh, on our farm, but particularly in the cereals, we've sort of still been able to sort of do three, three and a half tonne there and up to two tonne of canola where we've had good zero till, protected that country uh, from a weed control point of view and also have good rotations behind it. So if we can uh, fill a profile again, it gives us a lot of confidence to go into next year that, yeah, we don't need significant amounts of rain. We just need enough to hopefully grow another successful crop. Yeah, heading into to summer in what was supposed to be a very hot and, and dry one, potentially, how does this feel to be seeing you know, falls of 93 mil um, in the end of November? Oh, well, it's uh, going to bring forward some uh, glyphosate purchases, unfortunately. We'll be, in 10 days' time, we'll be, we'll be cranking up the boom spray and trying to get over most of our country before Christmas. So, yeah, that's uh, a bit of work that's in front of us, but... Yeah, apart from that, obviously for the stock stock people or people who are mixed farming, if they've got loosened loosen pastures, it's going to give them a real kick along. And probably also from the, the grazing or the mixed farming community, um, give them a bit of confidence that maybe the summer won't be as bad as what was being talked about earlier, or I guess in spring. So hopefully give them some confidence that they won't need to feed stock all the way through summer and potentially run a bit of water for... Uh, for, for, the, for their stock and also help their pastures kick away and give a bit more confidence back into the um, into the red meat complex. For you guys, how does this change what the next couple of weeks look like? We'll have to obviously try and get our winter crop off, um, spraying programs. We're not planning. We don't have any country prep for sorghum and even, even with this rain, we're still not a full profile. So I suspect we'll, we'll, take, we'll have the sorghum. We won't be planting any sorghum this year. Uh, mung beans, maybe if we got another significant rainfall, we might look at a paddock. But um, I'm not overly, uh, I'm not overly, con- still not overly confident about the summer, given the El Nino forecast. 
Bruce Watson, who farms between Parks and Forbes in the Central West, speaking there with Hamish Cole. Well, on the tablelands, some producers have welcomed the first decent rain they've had there in months. Robin Alders had a small property at Lagan in the Abercrombie River Valley in the southern tablelands. She told Emily Doak, after a wet start, it's been an unusually dry spring and this rain is very welcome. It's been all over the place. At the end of August, I managed to bog my little Suzuki, but then um, October, um, September, October, November, quite dry, strong, hot, northwesterly winds with, you know, maximum 30 mils a, a month. So the dams were in trouble. The pastures were holding up. But these last few days, um, we've had just over 50 mils, put a little bit of rain uh, into the dams, a lot of rain into the soil. So that's very welcome. And you run sheep, how are they looking? The, the sheep are doing okay. They came through winter okay. They're getting, you know, weekly supplement to, just so that they're, in, in case we do need to feed more over summer, they're ready to go. They're doing fine. We want to keep them doing fine and, and the soil as well. So just how welcome have the falls overnight been and, and these clouds that I can see rolling in from the west today? Uh, hugely welcome. My main concern was the level of the dams. They were really getting down. Plus, I've just put in, uh, uh, you know, 400 new trees and they're enjoying the drink as well. So why is tree planting something that you've been focusing on? It's been critically important for this place. It, it, most of the, the larger paddocks on this place face um, the west. So when we get those hot westerly winds, it really dries the paddock out. So having those tree lines in there, it helps to break that wind speed as well as providing shelter for the stock. So the hope is that once those trees are up and uh, um, creating that barrier, the, the sheep will have break from that cold wind in winter and they'll have shade in summer and the soil will have uh, reduced wind speed. What sort of pastures do you have on these rolling hills here? Uh, it's a mix of native pasture, native perennials, and, uh, and uh, yeah, quite a bit of phalaris that got away during the wet years. And so the rain at the moment, some of those, these falls have been quite heavy and people in other parts of um, the state are a little bit worried about what the heavy rain will mean for their dry feed in the paddocks. Is that a concern for you at this stage or you'd still need a fair bit more to, for there to be any worry there? Uh, at the moment, we haven't had heavy rain. You know, if it, you know, 15 k's to the east, they got 70 mils in a day. Clearly, that was going to flatten pasture. We've had the rain that we've had has been steady, and so uh, a lot of the the grass, particularly the grass that's putting a, a seed head at the moment, still standing, which is good news. So, all in all, um, you know, just in time for the, those dams. Has it put a bit of a spring in your step? Uh, absolutely. It certainly helps you to sleep well at night when there's rain on the roof. Robin Alders there talking about the, the rain at her place uh, in the southern uh, Tablelands. So she's a grazier. She was speaking there to Emily Doak. It's 20 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, let's turn our attention to the Murray-Darling Basin. The Commonwealth, have, uh, they'll have the green light to enter the water market and buy irrigation water from farmers to boost the environment, with the Albanese government securing the numbers to rewrite the Murray-Darling Basin plan. The Greens and Independent Senators David Pocock and David Van have supported the bill. 
Uh, Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has been seeking to extend the 2012 Murray-Darling Basin Plan and social and economic impacts on the communities will now be considered uh, when decisions are made on returning Murray-Darling water to the environment. Last week I caught up with an expert on the Darling, Dr Martin Mallon-Cooper, who's an adjunct professor at Charles Sturt University. He says basin plan changes are needed to keep rivers like the Darling healthy and flowing, even during severe drought. Actually, you know, a lot of this was said in the millennium drought and, and, uh, and, the, and the river was not running and a lot of people said this is its natural state. And in fact, that motivated me to go back to some flow records. And, and this was actually hard to find. This was in the, in the State Library. It was hard copy. It's not on the internet. And I found records back to 1850. So I looked at flow records from 1850 to 1950. So after 1950, large dams were built, irrigation takes off. And you find the river flows 90% of the time. There's no question about that. So everyone agrees at the time that it flows 90% of the time. Now, that's overall. Sometimes in droughts it might, might be down to 80%. But there's another incredible fact about those droughts. I looked at the worst droughts on record. Federation drought, 1895 to 1903. Uh, World War II drought. And compared with the Millennium drought, in those in those droughts, Federation drought, you know, this had a period of 11 months of zero flow at Benindi, but it also had half the time a thousand megalitres a day. That means you're standing in the river a metre deep and it's 20 metres wide, half the time. And every 14 months, you had a pulse of flow that was 14,000 megalitres per day. That's the river's three and a half metres deep and about 30 metres wide. Every 14 months, on the worst drought on record. That does not sound like a desert river. So no, it's incorrectly described as drying out and it does have cease to flow periods and when it stops flowing, it is a series of pools. Absolutely, that's true. So what happened in the millennium drought was not natural. There was certainly a drought, there were low inflows, but those low inflows were captured by dams in the tablelands and therefore they couldn't flow down to the Bowen River. The Darling River stopped flowing, I can't remember, 38 times from up to 1960. Actually, that's actually true. It did stop flowing. Sometimes it stopped flowing for a week. A week's nothing. A month out there, fish don't mind if it stops for a month. As a matter of fact, if you're a water manager of a town water supply, you don't mind if it stops for a week or a month. So no, yeah, it stopped flowing. But those big periods, six months and 12 months, a 12-month period, like that 11 months actually in 1902, I think it is, that's a one-in-100-year event. That's an incredibly rare thing. So what happened in the millennium drought, some of those long periods of where it went from zero flow and then went for, I can't remember, maybe it was 14 months, that period of zero flow was extended due to capture of water upstream. There's absolutely no doubt, and I've published some data on this, that's an absolute fact. So what you are seeing in the millennium drought is not natural. Now, we need to be really honest and transparent about what the river was and actually what it is now. For 60 years, paddle steamers went mm. up and down the Darling. This yeah. is the major commercial full route. Full of wool bales, yeah. Oh, yeah, mm. full of wool, ba- wool bales. So this is a major commercial highway. The New South Wales state put 0.5% of its total budget into clearing snags and rocks on the Barwon Barker. 0.5%. 
at the total state budget. So they're thinking this is a major commercial highway. I would also add, in doing so, they pulled out snags, but they also removed uh, fish traps from Aboriginal people. They cut channels into rock bars that were actually cultural sites, and we have not yet sort of rectified that. And we need to acknowledge that, and then we, we start to mend our relationships with First Nations. And you've done a lot of work with them, but I wanted to go back to that issue about what happened in the Millennium Drought. So who is to blame for that? Is it is it uh, the big dams holding too much water upstream? Is it um, over-extraction by irrigators? What's, what's the reason for that? Actually, it's, 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 it's quite clear. Matter of fact, lots of people were, were laying blame and they're saying, yes, all of the irrigators are to blame or, you know. But actually, this is absolutely the sum of multiple decisions over 30 years. So, so really, there, there's lots of pressures, lots of pressures from industry to e- extract more water. And sure enough, you know, we presently have or will have 80% of water for irrigation. So, um, and, and times in the past, it's even, even been higher, you know, percentages. But that is a result of decisions by multiple governments over a long period of time. And so we're here now and we know, from a scientist's viewpoint, the level of extraction is too high to maintain a healthy river. Even now? now right now, the level of extraction of water is not uh, you know, sustainable to have a healthy Bowen Barker right now. When the basin plan comes into play, We'll have 20% more water, so we should have... Well, we will wait and see. So the idea of the basin plan is you get monitoring. Will 20% be enough? Um, maybe not. Or, uh, absolutely, maybe not. But, but And look, there, there's a case here, if you do really, really good monitoring, you might find that is enough. I've, my view as a scientist is it's not enough. It needs to be objective uh, monitoring of that to see... And, uh, and then find out. What about your view on the buyback scheme? So is that the way to address it, or should we be you know, looking at buying back whole licences? There are lots of different ways to achieve that, and the buybacks is one of them. But also we can manage, manage the water uh, much, much better. You know, some of the, um, the way we manage water, for example, out in the, on the Barwon Barker, we have... Too much evaporation? Too much evaporation. We, we, we actually, so, you know, as examples, we have lots of weir pools. We lose a lot of water by evaporation. We can be way smarter about this. We could have covered up off-stream storage. You know, we, we could have, we could be a really smart uh, community, you know, managing water in a semi-arid system. I, I would propose, in terms of the Bowen Barker, that no one pumps any water out at low flows. So, in other words, the, we have... All of the low flows are dedicated to the river. So actually, therefore, we have towns on alternative water supplies, stock of domestic on alternative water supplies. So you give those people better water supply, give them higher quality water, more secure water, but once the river gets low, that is entirely dedicated to the river. And I would go further and say that needs to be transparent from the headwaters. So once we're in a drought and there's low flows... It needs to be transparent from the headwaters all the way through the Bowen Barker. Okay, well, that wouldn't make you very popular with uh, a lot of people on the on the river, particularly in the north. The, I think the conversation that needs to be had about what people want the river to be and what their personal need is, and and if if I'm a person living on the river, I want clean water, I want I want secure water, 
I want, actually when I want water I can drink, I want water I can swim in. I want water for my, you know, for my sheep and my cattle. So if you address those needs, and I think we address them and go further. So I, so I, I think we provide better stock and domestic. We give them better quality water. At the moment, you can't drink that water. That's not, we call it stock and domestic, but no one's drinking that water. So, um, you know, for the towns, they have to treat it. So I, I actually think there is a win-win here. And the other win is you, every community out there and every person living on the river wants a healthy river. There's a vision here for a healthy river. So if there were, you know, l- less weirs on the river and there was more base flow, I can guarantee as a scientist there's going to be more fish in the river. Absolutely. There, there's, this, this, this is not a complex formula. You have flow, habitat connectivity, fish can move up and down, then absolutely there will be more fish in the river. And that's a huge community value. But at the same time, you give the community better water and more of it. But we hear people say, oh, you know, but we need to have water for productive agriculture and, uh, you know, it's all the, the, the greenies are taking control and they're talking about environmental water and the, we're wasting the flow down into the, the Coorong. What's your response to that? Look, I, I, I think there's a huge amount of, of science in this, and this is an absolute balancing act, and I think that, that, that all the work that went into the Basin Plan and they land on that number, and that's 20% the, for the environment, absolutely. Proceed with that. This is about the entire community. This is about everyone's well-being. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot, lot of time you know, on, on the river, and one-to-one, every single farmer I speak to wants a healthy river. There's absolutely no question about that. So, so, so that, that polarisation argument, yes, it ends up in the press. My, my sense on the ground is every single person wants a healthy river. They want fish in the river. They don't want blue-green algae. They want to be able to drink the river. There's absolutely a lot of cohesion around this. So, so there's, a, there's some polarised you know, arguments you'll see in the press and you'll see in, in terms of politics. But the feeling on the ground is everyone wants the same thing. Dr. Martin Mallon Cooper, who's an adjunct professor at Charles Sturt University and a long-time watcher of the Darling River and also an ecologist and uh, expert on fish as well. It's uh, coming up to uh, 29 minutes to one on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Shortly we'll hear from John Maitland, who's the former Hunter Valley coal mining executive uh, who's uh, just been released from uh, prison. Uh, we'll hear a bit more about him as well, uh, about his uh, his views on uh, the uh, uh, call for, his call for compensation uh, for shareholders as well. Uh, that's coming up shortly on the program. but uh, And some weather details as well with all the rain around the place. Some places uh, 300, 350 millimetres in the last week or so. A uh, bit of damage as well. We'll hear from the Bureau on that too. And we'll be crossing to our reporters on the ground at Deniliquin where they've had quite a lot of flooding too. So that's coming up shortly as well. But uh, before we do anything else, we should get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. How afternoon. are you going? Uh, what was that? How am I going? <laughs> oh, don't know. Don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, uh, there's a little bit of bright news I found. Um, the OECD, uh, which is led by the uh, former Finance Minister of Australia, Matthias Cormann, uh, they're forecasting an end to the Reserve Bank's uh, interest rate uh, hike cycle uh, and also potential cuts uh, from next year. Uh, he says it's probably peaked at around 4.35%, but he says they'll probably hold it there 
for a little bit longer uh, before we start to see them come down. So hopefully that comes to fruition. Meanwhile, the Federal Treasurer says the government is planning uh, is not planning to change uh, plans to introduce the Stage 3 tax cuts. That's despite calls from within the party to make alterations. That would see uh, anyone earning between $45,000 and $200,000 a year be taxed at 30% uh, from July. Some backbenchers have raised concerns about cost of living pressures um, and the optics of giving a tax cut uh, to some while others are struggling. And they're meeting with uh, Jim Chalmers today. Uh, Ten more Israeli women and children and four Thai nationals have been released by Hamas in the uh, hostage swamp deal. Uh, It also follows the release of two Russian-Israeli women earlier in the day and a US citizen. And, of course, there is talks continuing to uh, try to get the uh, current ceasefire extended even longer. Uh, Back home, uh, Sydney's Newington College, uh, quite an elite uh, uh, school, Uh, it's... uh, uh, wants to uh, make it co-ed, but parents there are now threatening legal action. Uh, 160-year-old school uh, announced uh, last week plans to introduce uh, girl students from 2026 and go fully co-ed from 2033, Uh, but many of the parents are objecting to the plan now. Being a private school, the state government has no say in it. but, uh, yeah, it could be an interesting test case. That <laughs> That's right. And a bit of sports news. Michael Maguire is the uh, new coach of the uh, New South Wales Rugby League side on a multi-year, uh, multi-year deal. Uh, he'll be joined by John Cartwright, Matt King and Brett White as his uh, assistants. He uh, led New Zealand to the uh, win the Pacific Cup earlier this month and he won a premiership with Souths in uh, 2014. Mm, yes, that's right. And it's a multi-year deal. Multi-year deal. Mm, so there you go. To, uh, three seasons. To, yeah. <laughs> to uh, bring the cup back back yeah, home <laughs> where it belongs. <laughs> All right. was proud. Okay. Yeah. All right, thanks for that. Okay. Adam's story will be back at one o'clock. It's coming up to 25 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Quite a lot of rain around. You want to park at the Bureau? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're hearing reports uh, around the Bega Valley, three, some people 300, 350 millimetres for the week, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, some crops underwater and that sort of thing. There's some flooding. Um, and uh, is that the, the area of the state that was hardest hit, do you think? That's right, yes. That, that was in association with the low-pressure system and the rain event that actually lasted in the last two days till this morning. I think it was mainly yesterday and then it actually continued on into the, uh, this morning. But good thing is uh, this, the low is gradually weakening and we expected the low centers to slowly move to the Tasman Sea while weakening. And so with that, we actually have seen quite a significant reduction in rain rate. So although the severe weather warning for uh, heavy rainfall is still current, uh, you, uh, you, if you have a look at the latest uh, uh, warning area from our web or app, you can see that the warning area actually actually has contracted further south, you know, to the far south coast of uh, New South Wales and the uh, far southern ranges around Bombala and maybe south of Marimbula and the Eden area. Um, and but on the other hand, well, I mean, the uh, atmosphere is still unstable, especially over the southeast quarter of the state. So we expect a continuation of uh, uh, rainfall in the, um, over much of the southeast and central east and southern inland, not in the form of rain, but in the form of showers and thunderstorms. And still, some of the thunderstorms could still be severe. 
um, in the southeast. So if that develops, then please uh, be watchful. But on the other hand, uh, due to the hit and miss nature of uh, these showers, we do not expect a uh, continuation of widespread uh, rain in other parts. So if there's anything uh, for heavy rainfall, it will be very much localized. But on the other hand, just as you mentioned, uh, this very heavy rainfall in the last, uh, you know, one, maybe one and a half days or close to two to two days in the southeast, and there are uh, still uh, several flood warnings going on in the southeastern river systems. Uh, in, uh, but good, thing, good news is Moruya River uh, uh, has been finalized for flood warning, uh, but um, Biga is still in um, model, uh, sorry, minor level, and um, well, looks like it is also gradually decreasing. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, for other river systems like Snowies and so on, they are all in the minor level as well. There are several of them, so please refer to uh, our website as well for further information. Then, um, during the uh, over the coming days, uh, while we expect a continuation of showers and thunderstorms uh, still to continue, uh, mainly in the southeast quarter of the state, where we may see additional uh, you know, few millimeters of rainfall, but with the uh, training of showers or thunderstorms, uh, we may see localized moderate to heavy falls, and then may lead to localized flash flooding, if not the widespread riverine flooding. And then um, during the, uh, from next week on, we actually expect a ton to dry weather conditions with the increasing heat. Right, okay, so warming up a bit and uh, drying out a bit. And uh, throughout the Central West and Riverina and uh, the far west of the state, quite, quite a lot of rain, you know, out even out to Deniliquin, 135 millimetres, some areas of Central West, 90 millimetres. So pretty widespread, this rain. That's right, yes. Yeah, because the state was actually full of moisture in the last two weeks. I mean, it's a bit strange because we've been telling El Nino. But, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, someone asked about that. They said, with El Nino and you know, hotter and drier conditions, how can we have these rain events like this? Uh, yes, so... So we actually expected the whole weather patterns to be more in line with the El Nino pattern, perhaps from the second, maybe second half of December, maybe. Um, but in the short term, you know, we happens to have plenty of moisture, you know, not just in New South Wales, but across the eastern Queensland and into Victoria. So <laughs> this is what happened. But, but El Nino, after all, it is a climate driver, but not the driver for the short term weather. Right. OK. So these things can happen. That's right, yes. Mm. Ojuan, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's uh, coming up to 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, a former Hunter Valley coal mining executive is pushing the New South Wales government for compensation for shareholders who lost money when he was accused of corruption. John Maitland cleared his name in a retrial and was released from prison after spending two years behind bars. Hundreds of investors in the Hunter were entangled in the controversy and there are calls for the New South Wales government to make amends. Our Upper Hunter reporter, Bindi Bryce, has the story. It has been 13 years since John Maitland was accused of dodgy business in Hunter Valley coal mining. He lost his career, his house and served two years in jail. Mr Maitland has fought hard to prove his innocence and he has no plans to live the quiet life. Look, I haven't chased an apology. I've been more concentrating on making sure that the people who were very much affected by uh, what I was accused of, and that is the you know, mum and dad people in the Hunter Valley, were looked after first. Mr Maitland used to be the chairman of Doyle's Creek Mining, a company which obtained a mining licence near Jerry's Plains in 2008. It was taken over by New Coal the following year 
and word got out among local retired coal miners and mum and dad investors about the company's plans to build an underground mine. There were families who had aspirations of looking after their children and grandchildren uh, by investing in a project in the Hunter Valley and have, have lost that opportunity. Former New South Wales Resources Minister Ian McDonald awarded the licence without a competitive tender process and it was thought he was in a corrupt arrangement with Mr Maitland. The two were jailed after a criminal trial and investigation by the Independent Commission Against Corruption. But Mr Maitland was released in 2019 after the case was appealed. A retrial which wrapped up this year found Mr Maitland Maitland was not guilty of being an accessory to Mr McDonald's offences of willful misconduct in public office. I have lost everything in this case, um, primarily because of legal costs. I had to run my own case at the end of 2022, the one that I won and uh, found me not guilty of any wrongdoing. So it's been uh, a difficult journey. Certainly for my family, it's been a difficult journey. Amid the accusations of corruption in 2014, former Premier Barry O'Farrell introduced a change in legislation that allowed the New South Wales government to seize Newcoal's mining licence. The company's share price plummeted and some investors lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Even though Mr Maitland and New Coal have been found to be innocent, the state government has ruled out making amends. There has been an injustice done not only to me and my family, but to all these other people who basically are the victims of bad decisions by the previous government. Peter Harvey from Newcastle is one of those victims. I'm a small-time shareholder, small-time investor. I'd followed that business for a little while, did some due diligence. You think you're investing for, you know, the right reasons. My daughter lives with significant disability and the investment opportunity for Newcastle was to be able to, at a point in time, get that money out and put Eliza into a um, specialist disability accommodation. You know, and that's just been rubbed out. Mr Harvey says he invested about $110,000 into new coal. Most of it is gone, but he can't say what the exact amount is now. Honestly, I, I don't look at it because you can't. You know, it's not good for our mental health to talk about it. We just can't move forward with our lives because this is just consuming. It's estimated it would cost the state government $453 million to compensate the shareholders. Mr Maitland says it's not a normal case of investors losing money in the ups and downs of the share market. It was as a result of a government decision. I mean, the people lost their property as a result of the lease being taken away from them. If that lease had been uh, allowed to continue, then there'd be no uh, disadvantage. It's a case of the government took away something and therefore the government should compensate people for it. A spokesperson from Premier Chris Min's office says it followed recommendations from ICAC to cancel the licence and current legislation doesn't require the state to pay compensation. That report by Bindi Bryce and you can read more about the story on abc.net.au. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The cottage restaurant in Scone has had a tough run in recent years dealing with the downturn in business from the drought, the mouse plague and COVID. But Colin Selwood said they've managed to weather those challenges and earlier this month they were awarded a national prize, a silver medal in the Regional Restaurant Catering Awards category of Contemporary Australian Informal Restaurant. Colin took me for a bit of a tour of the restaurant earlier this week. 
And I'm here with Colin Selwood. We're in the uh, Cottage Restaurant in Scone and we're just walking through the restaurant. You can hear the music in the background here. Cole, one of the attractions for your restaurant really is meat, grass-fed grass-fed beef. Uh, we're going into the cool room to see you've got uh, a fair amount down here. Let's uh, tell us a bit about this, this meat you've got at the back here. So our beef, it comes from uh, Wingham, which is a, an abattoir just near Taree. And um, it's all grass-fed, hormone-free, and it's dry-aged in our specific dry-aging room in here. You can hear the, uh, the refrigerator in the background there. So um, what have we got here in front of us? Um, okay, so this, these animals, they're close to about 500 kilos live weight. Um, they are processed, and we get to buy the best parts off the abattoir. They're then hung in this room. Um, they're dry-aged. There's a relative humidity of 75%, and um, it's between 3 and 1 degree. It's, it's in here for at least... Um, three weeks before we start cutting into it and it'll take us about three weeks to use it so about every six weeks i'll buy about a thousand dollars worth of beef and start to hang it and obviously on the menu and it's 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 a big seller yeah yeah people love it it's, there's nothing better than a piece of dry aged beef yeah and uh, let's go back out into the restaurant um you've also just won a major national prize tell us about that yeah so we went to the um the state awards evening in Sydney and we were up for three awards we got two of the three one was for a contemporary Australian um, restaurant that is regional and informal so we uh, we picked up that we won that and we also won best breakfast we we're up for also the um, steak <laughs> steak award steak restaurant award which we've got several times in the past but we missed out on it this year somebody uh, a, a winery in Picolbin got it um, anyway so after the state awards um, all the finalists from all the different states and territories go to the nationals so we picked up a silver for the contemporary Australian restaurant informal mm. okay so and, and talking about this restaurant here you were saying you've been in the game for a long time and you really felt like you sort of wanted to um, get uh, closer to the roots and closer to the community, and that's the, that's that's why you you decided to to be here in the main street of Scone. Yeah, it was also because I, I grew up in the country in New Zealand, and I wanted my son to grow up kind of like the similar way to I did. Um, so yeah, we're in we're in the country, and we got out of Sydney um, what twelve years ago, and never really looked back. But you had some difficult times with the. With the drought, with the pandemic, it hasn't been easy. Oh, no. We, we were going down um, toward the end of the drought. Money had totally dried up in town. Um, and it was pretty tragic. Um, if it continued, we would have more than likely not be here now. Um, so then we had the, the fires, and then we got the rain, and then we got green grass, then we got the mouse plague, <laughs> and then we got COVID. Yay! Um, <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've come out of that and we've been here for nine, year, nine years now. Mm. And you, you said that um, having a barista and having the, the coffee actually sort of <laughs> kept, you, kept your head afloat, really, yeah, and I can yeah. see that was important. Yeah, it was my wife's idea to try to save, save the shop, um, so we decided to do cafe. Um, and then that cafe was, di um, was very important for us for like the pandemic era so we did all the takeaways and all that kind of stuff out of that kind of like takeaway situation mm -hmm. the ta um the uh, cafe rather and um 
that the cafe kind of outgrew itself. It's a bit of a focal point for the community, for the town, really, in a way, too, as well. We're talking about the horse festival. So uh, things like that and the tourism and some of those festivals are pretty important. Uh, to you as a business but uh, you know right back at you you've got to have somewhere to go yeah that's it like this is um, the horse festival and then we've got the stallion parades um, those both those events are really big for us we, we we need those to you know keep keep ourselves alive it's great when the restaurant's busy and it's full and it's pumping and there's people everywhere and there's, the atmosphere is just amazing and you know people come come from cities be it be it like you know brisbane melbourne or, or sydney and they they come here for the um for these evenings and they go like wow this is incredible and it's like yeah we love it a cottage restaurant in scones colin selwood there it's uh, coming up to 12 minutes to one on the new south wales country hour well a singapore-based company has uh, made a bid to take over one of australia's largest cotton gin operators louis dreyfus company this week announced a conditional offer which would see it acquiring the remaining 83 percent of the shares in namoy cotton that it uh, doesn't currently own namoy cotton executive chairman tim watson told brandon long the deal is yet to be finalized but he believes there are plenty of positives for growers. And then when Cotton's received a uh, what's called a non-binding indicative offer from Louis Dreyfus. So what that means in simple terms is that uh, Louis Dreyfus has made an offer of a total of 51 cents to buy the uh, remaining shares that they don't already own and they own circa 17% of, of Namoy Cotton at, the, at this stage. It's subject to some due diligence. We'll call it an extraordinary general meeting of the shareholders. We expect that will happen sometime around April or May. The shareholders get to vote on on the outcome. We've had in, in it indication from our major other shareholders, being Samuel Terry Asset Management, that they would support this offer. Multiply 51 cents by 208 million shares, roughly. I think that works out at 109 million or thereabouts. I'm just wondering how long uh, this has been in the pipeline for. Well, we announced the strategic review. I think it was in July, and we, you know, we announced that to the market that we were undertaking a strategic review, and that all all options were on the table. So. Well, that was uh, the uh, news about uh, Namoy Cotton and uh, Louis Dreyfus uh, trying to get the remaining shares there uh, and uh, that offer still hasn't been decided yet, but uh, that's uh, the way the situation is at the moment. Let's cross now to Deniliquin because we were talking there earlier with the Weather Bureau about the amount of rain. They had some flooding there. They had a, num- a bit some damage to houses in the town, but uh, also quite a lot of flooding on the river and about 135 millimetres. Monty Jacker is the ABC reporter. He's there at the moment. Good afternoon. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Very well. So a uh, fair bit of water on the ground still and quite a bit of rain causing some damage in Deniliquin and uh, in the region too. Yeah, well, it's it's very much the calm after the storm here in Deniliquin. At the moment, you'd be forgiven for not even really realising what how hectic it was yesterday. Blue skies, not too much water getting around, but I think if you go around with a careful eye, you'll notice a few people at businesses and homes sort of working to clean out pulling out carpets and everything. Mm. And and the river's still running high or not really? And uh, I guess on the drive out there you would have seen, uh, uh, you know, flooding and water and rainfall and some damage too heading out there too from Wagga. Yeah, definitely some flooded paddocks along the way. The river's not too bad. The big issue here, according to the New South Wales SES, is actually that all the rain fell directly onto Deniloquin and the oh, levee right, bank, right. which is 
the levee bank, which is obviously meant to protect the um, town from flooding from the river, is actually keeping all the water trapped in. So there's a few SES teams set up by the Edward River here, and they're sandbagging some homes and businesses there and trying to um, help get that water back over the levee and then into the river. Right, okay, so yeah, it just uh, fell in the wrong place at the wrong time by the sound of things. So you mentioned some, some damage there, damage to houses, quite a number of houses in the town as well, but I, I would imagine some, some farmers uh, obviously uh, racking up a bit of a damage bill too uh, in the region as well. No, definitely. There are a few crops that um, definitely weren't look, were looking a bit worse for wear on the way over. And um, New South Wales SES said they received uh, 60 calls for assistance and there's up to 20 homes um, across the region that have been impacted. Mm. And how long do you think it'll take for the cleanup? Uh, the SES reckons it will take quite a while, particularly it just yeah, it's so flat out here and the water is really just travelling, trying desperately to find that lowest area. So the SES is doing the best they can to keep track of it, but sounds like it could be a few more days to go. And I guess the thing is that you're saying that the water level has uh, has dropped and it, it has stopped raining there too? Yeah, it's nice and sunny here at the moment. A beautiful day, actually, in Deniliquin. Right, okay. And the, and the river has already subsided, so there's less of a, less of a concern there? Yeah, that's the case. Okay, and uh, no doubt we'll hear more about your reports uh, later on when you re- return back. But, uh, Monty Jack, I appreciate your time on the Country Hour today. Definitely. Really appreciate it, Michael. Have a good one. You too, Monty Jacker, who's out there at Deniliquin. Uh, as uh, we were saying, this damage bill, uh, damage to farmers, damage to the town, uh, a lot of people uh, waterlogged, uh, damage to a range of uh, uh, houses, uh, I think uh, into 15 houses was the latest report, and uh, the clean-up will continue there for quite some time by the sound of things. It's uh, coming up to six minutes to one time to head to markets. First up, let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs. In today's market, at Wodonga numbers surged to 1,790, accompanied by a notable uptick in stock quality. Queensland feeder buyers took the lead, sparking robust bidding for heavy, well-finished steers, ultimately fetching a top price of 290 cents. Medium-weight feeder steers experienced a substantial jump of 45 cents, reaching an impressive 277 cents. Domestic processors displayed... Strong competition to secure trade cattle, prompting them to assert themselves more aggressively against feedlots. Trade steers and heifers improved 15 to 35 cents and ranging from 210 to 278. Veal encountered heightened competition, resulting in a price lift of 15 cents. Bullocks and heavy steers, they experienced a significant 20 cent increase with competition intensifying as the sale progressed. Prices for these categories range from 230 to 255. Cows also saw an upward trend of 10 to 20 cents. Heavy cows commanded prices ranging from $2 to 232, while bullocks reached a peak at 242. Overall, the market did exhibit positive momentum against various Categories reflecting robust trading activity. This has been Leanne Dax for MLA. And I think that uh, that was a cattle report, so I'm not sh- I'm not, don't think that was the wrong report we put to air there, unfortunately, so apologies for that. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle. 
With the stronger markets around, numbers lifted by 800 for yarding a 3,510. It was a good quality yarding with good numbers of young cattle to suit the processors, feeders and backgrounders. There were some very good quality weaners to suit the restockers, though there were only limited numbers of cows and ground steers and heifers. Young cattle of the trade were 15 cents dearer with the prime yearlings selling from 220 to 300. Feeder steers and heifers were 30 to 40 cents dearer with the feeder steers selling from 240 to 356. Feeder heifers sold from 230 to 305. Young cattle of the restockers were considerably dearer, with the 400 cent mark easily broken for both steers and heifers. Restocker steers sold from 280 to 456, while young restocker heifers sold from 256 to 440. Ground steers were 14 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were 22 cents dearer. Prime ground steers sold from 225 to 258, while the ground heifers sold to 259. Cows were 13 cents dearer, with the prime heavyweight cows selling from 215 to 231, to average 224. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. And let's go to Yas Cattle now for the details there. Here's Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Numbers were steady at 752. The quality remains good. Light cattle were very limited with the bulk, medium and heavy weights. There was a large run of export cattle and close to 150 cows. There was a few extra buyers operating and competing and the market sold to stronger trends. The few wieners ranged between 224 and 262. Feeder steers lifted 50 cents on the medium and heavy weights and they ranged between 242 and 309. Feeder heifers were 45 cents on the better bred cattle and 20 cents on the secondary lines. Most sold between 230 and 278. Trade cattle ranged between 234 and 255. Grown steers lifted 23 cents and the heavy bullocks 17. They sold between 232 and 242. Heavy grown heifers lifted 15, 208 to 240. Cows jumped 20 cents with the heavy three and four score cows, 180 to 234. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks, Graham. And that's the market information for today. And just recapping our main stories, the Commonwealth uh, will be given the green light to enter the water market and buy irrigation water from farmers to boost the environment with the Albanese government securing the numbers to rewrite the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The Greens and Independent Senators David Pocock and David Van support the bill. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has been seeking to extend the uh, 2012 Murray-Darling Basin Plan, and now it's been extended out to 2027. Social and economic impacts on communities will be considered. That was some of the amendments asked for by Independent David Van. Uh, social and economic impacts on communities will be considered when decisions are made on returning Murray-Darling water to the environment. On the Country Hour, it's uh, coming up to one minute to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Hopes Gaza's temporary ceasefire could be extended again as the Mayor of Gaza City speaks out about the impact of the war. East Coast drenching, some communities underwater, others without power as storms continue to cause chaos and return to the office or lose cash, bonuses being linked to the amount of time workers are spending at the office. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. And on the Country Hour, a reminder, we'll be back with you between 12 and 1. We're heading up to news time now and at 1 o'clock.